So to recap, we're seeking to answer two questions about the treasure of Forest Fen with this podcast. The first question is, does the $2 million treasure that Forest Fen claims to have buried in the Rocky Mountains really exist? The second question is, just who is Forest Fen? We need to answer the second question before we can answer the first question. So in that vein, here we go. The chicken hawks are full of squawks Deep in the heart of Texas The oil wells I don't know exactly when I heard of Temple. I mean, I grew up in San Antonio and it was one of the cities along the highway kind of up to North Texas, so I guess as long as I can remember. Let's start at the beginning. Forrest Fenn was born in the town of Temple, Texas in 1930. Since I don't know anyone from Temple, I asked my wife, a native Texan, though she fled to California, to help me find a few people who are familiar with Temple for some context. Here are Paige and Janie, who both have worked in Temple. So you've always known it as kind of a, a place to get gas on the way to either Dallas or wherever you're going north of San Antonio. Exactly. They do have a really big Bucky's that's great to stop at. I'm laughing here because Bucky's is not just a gas station, it's a monument to civilization. You have to check them out. Pretty safe city and um, not not much like not much crime. Yeah. Well it's like a smaller place. There's um there's things to do. There's like a bigger community feel I guess. A lot of people know each other from different contexts. Like people would see each other at their workplace and also like at community groups or at churches and whatnot. So it seems like there's a stronger community feeling. Temple, Texas currently has a population around 76,000. When Fenn was growing up, the population was closer to 15,000. Fenn's father was the principal of grade school in Temple. Here's an excerpt from a series of interviews that Fenn did with our friend and Forrest Fenn expert, Dale, who we heard from in episode one. And so my father was a school teacher who got uh, three months off every summer. And so we started going to Yellowstone not only to be with my grandparents, but because my father was an avid fisherman. And so uh, I think my first time up there was when I was one, 1931, and we camped at Fishing Bridge at Yellowstone Park. You could camp, you could put a tent up in those days and, and stay for three months in your tent. And there were hundreds of tents around the lake between the lake and fishing bridges, not very far, a thousand feet or so, and there were tents everywhere. And there was bears at night, bears walking all through those tents. And uh, it was a very popular place. Now, nowadays, you can't fish off a fishing bridge and you can't put a tent over there. All the time that Fenn spent with his family in Yellowstone seems to have cultivated a love for the outdoors that followed him through the rest of his life. But where would that take him first? I 
After high school, Fenn headed to Texas A&M. Well, I had a bunch of buddies that uh, I played basketball and football with. You know, we'd lived together for four years in high school. And uh, when we graduated from high school, all of those guys were going to go to Texas A&M. And, uh, and they registered, pre-registered, and I guess they prepaid and everything else. But I, at, at uh, two hours before they were going to go down there in a the car, I told them to call, come by and get me too. <laughs> I jumped in the car with an extra, uh, with a change of clothes, and uh, I went to Texas A&M. I signed in, and they gave me a uniform and a bed to sleep in, and uh, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, we started going to class. I even took some notes. You know, I, I didn't really take notes, but I pretended that I was writing. I wanted everybody to think that I was really part of that. <laughs> and then we were playing football out on the football field about three or four days later, and I heard my name called over the loudspeaker. Cadet Finn, report to finance. I knew, I knew my college education was over. <laughs> but I still people, tell people I went to Texas A&M, which is a true story. I got my little bag of clothes, and I went out the back door uh, so nobody would see me and nobody was around. I tried to get through barbed wire fence and I, I, I fell a couple of times and it was, it was an agonizing time and then I stand there trying to hitchhike and there were no cars any place and then way down there I saw a pickup truck uh, that was coming out of Texas A&M turn and come my way and I, I knew that you know it was one of the guards they have people watching to make sure cadets don't go home so he pulled up and asked me what I was doing I told him I was going home because I had no money to pay to stay. And those were magic words to that guy. He, and he'd probably heard it before, but if I'd said anything else, well, he'd have probably taken me back. But, um, you know, they say money talks and cash screams, and I didn't have either one. So uh, it took me two days to get home. I spent the night in a, in a field with a bunch of cows around uh, under a big tree, and it, it, it was it, had time to reevaluate and uh, uh, traumatic times, you know. It, it sounds trivial now to me, but it was a big deal then. Ben's college career lasted less than a week when he realized that paying tuition was mandatory. After his brief stint in college, Ben headed to the Air Force. Here he is again being interviewed by Dale. It wasn't long after I got out, of, after I left Texas A&M, that the Korean War was going on, and I, and I was I was ripe for the draft. And so you know, if they drafted me, I'd go in the army, and I knew I wasn't going to do that. So uh, I went down, joined joined the Air Force, and uh, there were there were there were. Uh, Four of us joined the Air Force together, all of us buddies, and the, the, the son of the doctor that delivered me was one of my buddies. And uh, when we got on the bus to go to Lackland Air Force Base, we'd, uh, we hadn't even been sworn into the Air Force yet. And, and this doctor's wife came up to me and she said, Forrest, take care of Frank, will you? 
I said, sure, I'll take care of Frank. So we went to Lackland Air Force Base and they separated us and I didn't see him for 25 years. <laughs> but Frank did very well and, and the, 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 the Air Force grew me up. The Air Force just flat grew me up. During his career in the Air Force, Forrest Finn ended up serving in Vietnam, where he was shot down twice. This is something that I want to spend a little time dissecting. My knowledge of Vietnam is indirect. I, I grew up watching movies that touched on it or featured it, like Forrest Gump or Apocalypse Now, but I don't know much about it. We all know that the war was significant, both for our country and for the men that fought in it. Its shadow lingers in a way that seems distinct from other wars that the United States was involved in. Vietnam was a part of an existential crisis for the United States. To understand all of this and ultimately how it may have impacted our dear friend Forrest Fenn, I spoke to Nicholas J. Cole, who is a historian and the director of the Masters in Public Diplomacy program at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. I see the Vietnam War as kind of being, uh, I mean, the thing is, that, okay, it's a war, uh, but it's fought to establish an image of the United States. So it's image making by performance, if you like, by, by foreign policy performance. The United States wanted to seem to be the wave of the future to prove it was a dynamic society and more, uh, um, more dynamic than the communist system. And to, in order to do this, they needed to win revolutions, uh, to defeat challenges uh, anywhere they might come in the world. And so uh, the reason that the United States went to Vietnam was not that it was a centrally significant um, strategic place in the world, though some people argued that it was, but it was rather that that's where there was a communist challenge. And Every communist challenge was seen as being significant and a challenge everywhere had to be fought anywhere. And so there's a kind of a, a, a random element to uh, the Vietnam War. It could have been fought in the same kind of conflict could have been fought in Laos or it could have been fought in a number of other uh, places. They chose Vietnam. They deployed to Vietnam. Uh, but uh, the limits on uh, American uh, power were proven in, in Vietnam? Sure. I think that um, that's a good question. Um, and I, I think that uh, there was something traumatic for the country in the levels of dissent that were expressed around Vietnam. That for um, the United States, especially in the mid-20th century, foreign policy had uh, been a um, sort of a site of consensus. Um, people had come, uh, after, especially following Pearl Harbor, there was a kind of agreement that the role of the United States was going out into the world, fixing problems, uh, fighting uh, fascism, fighting communism. And then with Vietnam, uh, there's suddenly a question around what the limits on this should be. And uh, there's um, a, a controversy around whether the uh, thing should have happened at all. Uh, people uh, start to question uh, 
uh, the, the atrocities that were committed by Americans. I mean, that's a bit of a shock for American audiences to realize that there were incidents like the My Lai Massacre in 1968. It was exposed in the early 70s that show Americans behaving in a really terrible way. Um, uh, you know, individual Americans acting in the same way, basically, as, as, as Nazis. And that was a shock to um, the way Americans think and uh, the way any country would, would think about itself. Uh, you know, but people like to be the good guys, and Americans like to be uh, the good guys. And through the, the uh, experience of the Vietnam War, uh, questions started to open about the morality of the American role in world affairs. Statistics and dates are great, but to get a human understanding of Vietnam, I wanted to speak to people who had been there. So I went to a VFW hall in Burbank, California to speak to several veterans who were kind enough to share their experiences during and after the war with me. Their stories are full of both pain and comedy. However, the more I heard from these men, the more I started to realize important things about Fenn's character and mindset. So I encourage you all to come next week, find out what Wellness Works is all about, but also find out how you can sign up or contribute to the Not On Our Watch Veterans Awareness Suicide Watch. I went to a breakfast in Burbank, California at a local VFW post there where many of the veterans were kind enough to share their own stories about serving in Vietnam and other experiences related to their lives during and after the war. Um, I knew I was just barely a C student in high school and I knew I wasn't going to do anything. And then I went to college. I majored in alcohol and recess and I was real good at it. This is Rich who drove tanks in the war. And I got drafted in 66. I went to take my physical in May, and then I, I got a notice in September. I come home from school one day, right? And I walk in, and my mother's sitting in a corner. It's like little granny sitting in a corner, you know, and got this letter. And I said, what's up, Mom? What's going on? I said, what? She said, you got drafted. And I said, well, I said, you know, I got to go. I'll do it. So... Went in uh, September of 66. Went, I left for Vietnam the first uh, week or so of January 1967. This is Doug, who reported casualties during the war. I remember my first week or 10 days there, we had a, we had a sabotage attack at the Long Bin uh, ammo dump. And those explosions went on for about 22 hours without stopping. So at first, when it start, first hit about 2 a.m., we're all explosions started hitting, and we thought, well, we're going to get more, we're getting mortared or something like that. So everybody's diving for the for the sandbags, and we're we're laying there. It's two, three, four in the morning. Explosions are boom, 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 and it's probably 50 or 100 yards away from where we were laying. And these explosions were, were big time. They were big. And I'm thinking, well, this is the night of my death. I'm going to die tonight because I just got to Vietnam and this is my first week and this is what happened. So it was uh, it's quite a shocker. And I, I just remember after three or four hours that, you know, it started getting light outside about 5, 5.30 a.m. And I thought, man, I'm still alive. And 
for the following day, it kept exploding. And I think they lost uh, something like 20, I was heard, $20 million worth of ordnance that night. Here's Rich again. And I was in tanks. I was in the armor, 25th Infantry Division. Uh, I drove tanks. I learned, learned about them at Fort Hood from an old sergeant that came back from Vietnam. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, because we were talking earlier about your tank stories. Um, oh, man, I got, I got a couple. The first, first time that I uh, took a tank and I ran over a landmine and it blew the track off. Uh, I filled my shorts, scared the crap out of me. My sergeant depended on me and the sergeant and the captain and a couple of lieutenants and somebody. We built up our unit. We got some people that we could depend on to take charge of vehicles and get it built back up. And then we got hit again in March and I got wounded and I was in the hospital for five days. Um, then when I got out, I was kind of gun shy. You know, it's like you're in a car wreck. You don't want to get back in that car. Here's Doug again. I did all the reports on the killed and wounded and, you know, picked up some of the casualties. And uh, then I wrote the letters home to the parents, too, of our, our guys that were killed. I suppose uh, looking back on that as an older person now, I feel a little bit of survivor guilt about how lucky I was to get out of the field. Open the envelope and I'm looking at these Vietnam pictures and I had this massive panic attack (laughs) looking at these pictures. And it was almost as though the 10 years between right then and coming home from Vietnam that 10 years completely vanished, erased in my head, and I was sitting in the car, looking at these pictures, feeling like I was in Vietnam again. From that point on, I started having a lot of uh, anxiety or panic feelings about, oh, maybe Vietnam, and maybe about circumstances, uh, being closed in, being trapped a little bit, uh, things like loud noises, uh, I remember thinking that none of these people has any idea what I'm going through right this minute. I'm in these board meetings, you know, defending loans that I'm making, and I'm about to have a a massive anxiety attack right in front of everybody. It it, it was going on like that every day. And I finally finally went to see somebody about it, and uh, this doctor at UCLA, he actually put me in the psych hospital for a couple of weeks just to examine me, make sure I didn't have a brain tumor or something like that. <clears throat> and um, I eventually had to quit the job. I, I couldn't couldn't do it anymore. I just, I was having such a hard time with uh, maybe flashback business or just the, just the job that I did in Vietnam, maybe a little bit of that. And realizing how lucky I was and uh, thinking that somebody took my place and I just got lucky that kind of stuff so it was a very difficult period here's Mickey he was a prison guard during the war first thing I noticed was the heat and humidity and the smell you smelled it smelled like rotten garbage uh, um, uh, uh, what do you call it Um, spoiled fish or just a real fishy stinky smell but the heat was oppressive and the humidity. It's like I broke into a sweat by the time I got down to the bottom of the steps from the plane. I did a little bit of MP duty, but most of my 
time in Vietnam was sp spent working 12-hour shifts in the prison, the military prison there, where there were anywhere from AWOL to multiple murders, drugs, everything. It ran the gamut. And so I did that after one month of training and then three months at Leavenworth. Then I was really thrown into the mix when I got to Vietnam. You know, you become a, like almost a, you hate the whole human race and you don't trust anybody. Uh, anybody comes up to you, you wonder, you know, what are they, do, what, 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 what's he or she trying to do to, it's mostly males, but you know, is this guy gonna f me over? Uh, I don't believe what he says. Uh, this guy's afraid of the prisoners. Is he on their side? Uh, it's just a, a, a cynical mistrust of everybody. And, and, um, and, and going, you know, the only thing when I got to Vietnam, I wanted one thing to come home. When I compare the stories that these men shared with me to the stories that Forrest Finn has shared about his time in Vietnam, there's a huge difference. Forrest Finn's stories are, are glorified, and when he tells them, he sounds in love with himself. Vietnam is a country where it doesn't get cold, it, it doesn't get hot in the jungle, there, there's fast running water every place, there's lots of things to eat if you're willing to eat them. And I, I always wanted to jump out of an F-100. Or I shouldn't say an F-100. I always wanted to eject out of an airplane. I wanted the thrill of floating down in a parachute. And I, I, had, I had elaborate plans if I ever had that opportunity. I had a little Minox camera on these things like you do like that. It had a strapped. And if I, if I ever jumped out, I told myself that I was going to I wanted a picture of the parachute above me. I wanted a picture of the jungle through my boots below me. And I wanted a picture of the airplane crashing. When I jumped out in Laos, I got all three of those pictures. Uh, all night long, I, I kept asking myself, do I want to take it to, to another plateau? Do I, want, do I want to be picked up tomorrow morning or do I want to walk out of here? I had it in my radio. I can call, I can call rescue people or I can throw my radio away, either one. And I, I thought all night long about what I was going to do. I had, a, I had two pistols, I had a survival kit that had nothing much for me to use in it, but, but uh, there was food for a couple of days, uh, I don't remember what was in that, a, a dinghy and some, a lot of stuff, weighed 50 pounds. and. Uh, it finally came down uh, early in the morning that I said, it, it, it's not fair to my wife and my two kids. So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them. I got to be real. I don't trust him. He sounds like a man who's in love with his own legacy and not somebody who's going to tell us the whole truth. What this means for the treasure and fans' claims about it, I'm not quite sure yet. We're going to have to keep investigating. Where the Treasure Lies is written and hosted by me, Michael Fiatti. 
All of our music is original and composed by Josue Arias. Our producers are Blair Figari and Josue Arias. We have a special thanks to Christian Makoto Hancock. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get yours. And most importantly, if you have any information about Forrest Fenn or his treasure, please reach out to us via email at treasurepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.